You know, when you, when you scour the interwebs, the wonderful world of the interwebs, you can find all kinds of interesting facts. Uh, several weeks ago, Aaron and I were talking to our kids really about the country we lived in when we were living in Europe, the Slovak Republic. And and in particular, uh, we were talking about the Slovak language, which is phonetic. Uh, What that means ultimately is that every letter has a sound and only one sound, Uh, which is great because Slovaks, right, they, they can make words out of only consonants. Right, yeah, you should see that in your mind, right? No vowels, only consonants, and they can make those words work because every letter has one sound and one sound only. It's also the reason they have no problem spelling their words. What? Because if you can say it, you know how it's spelled. I mean, it's that great. And it got me thinking, it actually got me thinking like, what are the, the English words that are hard to pronounce? Especially, especially if you're coming in, right, and you're maybe a a second language speaker. Now, as I said, the the interwebs have a lot of opinions here and some very strong opinions, as it were. So what I tried to do is I I spent far too many hours looking at lists on the interwebs about hard to pronounce English words. But I'm going to try to boil down what I think are are some that appeared on every list, all right? And we're just going to, we're going to try to pronounce them uh, this morning. So Heather, let's get the first one. What's that word? (laughs) It's really fun to watch your lips do that, by the way. Rural, right? It's, I don't know why that is. We got to pinch it out. Rural, right? A lot of things together. Good. Let's look at the second one. I like that some of you just laughed. Like, no, not going to happen, right? Sesquipedalian. Uh, does anybody know what sesquipedalian means? It means long. You could have a, a sesquipedalian pastor who's <laughs> a little long-winded, right, perhaps? Yeah, sesquipedalian. Let's get the third one. Now, this is funny because I, I, I think, like, I've known how to say onomatopoeia for a long time, but lots of us insert an N where the T is. We say onomatopoeia rather than onomatopoeia, right? Of course, onomatopoeia is what? All the adults are like, mm, nope, still no, pastor. <laughs> Not going to do it. Middle schoolers probably know what onomatopoeia is, right? It, it's a, a word that sounds like it describes, like bark. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to the fourth one. Oh, you guys are from the Midwest. Uh, this is pronounced mischievous or mischievous, depending on where you're from. Mischievous, all right? That's definitely Midwestern. Uh, let's go to the next one. Quinoa. Quinoa. Yeah, two syllables. Not three, not quinoa, right? Quinoa. All right, let's go to the fourth one. This is the fifth, I think. Let's go to the fifth. Okay, first of all, the R is silent. I know there's an R there, and lots of us want to pronounce it, but it's silent, which means what? (laughs) Again, super fun to watch you try to put these words together. My kids and I spent all weekend working on this word, by the way. The accent is on the first syllable of the word. So, woe, Chestershire, right? Woe, Chestershire. Or, depending on what part of England you're from, because this is a town there, right? It might be woe, Chestershire. Again, if you're from the south or the north of England, it varies. But here, most often, woe, Chestershire, followed by 
Sauce, that's right. It's not up there, but that is what comes next. So, so these words, right, these are the words that if you scour the internet, quite honestly, they all think they're hard to pronounce, uh, particularly if you're coming to the English language as a second language. But here's the thing. I actually don't believe that these are the hardest words to pronounce. Of all the lists, of all the lists that I've looked at, of all of sort of those lists on the interwebs, the reality is, right, the reality is, I don't think it's the hardest. In fact, none of the lists, none of the lists had what I think are the hardest words in the English language. Uh, That's these. I think this is actually the hardest thing for people to say. I need help. Because at some level, it admits but I can't fix it. It admits that I'm at the end of my rope. It admits that I'm out of control. I think actually these are the hardest words to say. You know, today, today marks the beginning of Advent. Advent is a purposeful, metered journey towards the incarnation of Christ. And historically, the season of Advent has been about preparation, about preparing for the coming of Jesus, uh, both as a babe in Bethlehem, but also for his coming again as King and Lord of all creation. Now, lots of us, right, lots of us are familiar with preparation. Uh, I, I suspect that many of us are making preparations for Christmas in our homes, right? We prepare for the coming of Jesus by baking extra things, which I'm for, by the way. I think that's a win. We should get ready for Jesus with extra goodies, right? Some of us do that. Some of us, of course, put lights on our house or we put decorations inside of our house. Some of us don't socks on the mantle over our fireplace. We put on songs that set the mood. Like we are familiar with preparation. But in all of those preparations, those preparations are primarily external things. We are not as familiar with the preparation of our internal worlds. Uh, We know how to prepare all the things out here from goodies and socks over the fireplace, but we're not as good about the preparation that's demanded of the human heart. See, the season of Advent is about preparation, and it's not so much about the preparation of external things but it is about the preparation of our internal world to prepare our heart for the coming of Jesus, both as a babe in Bethlehem, but also when he comes again as king and the Lord of creation. See, Advent is a season to be honest about what we are and about what we are not. It is a season to prepare our internal worlds. And this is why, sisters and brothers, we'll be spending time with the prophet Isaiah in this preaching series that's going to lead up to Christmas. Because Isaiah, as a prophet, is rife. It's just rife with preparation. And in particular, the preparation of the heart. You see, Isaiah is chock full of messages that are both comforting but also challenging as God's people prepare for the coming of the Messiah. If I could boil it down, Isaiah is a preparation prophet. 
He's a preparation prophet. So, sisters and brothers, I want you to grab a Bible, and we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 64 together. Uh, hopefully you brought your own. If not, there's Bibles provided for you. I want to get to Isaiah. Now, I know that lots of us don't spend time reading Isaiah, or some of us are new to faith, and you're like, I got no idea where that is in the Bible. That's okay. At the beginning of the Bible, there's a table of contents. Use that. It is a gift. Like every time you got to find Jude, same thing. Like who knows where that is? Use the table of contents. Get to the beginning of Isaiah. And then you're looking for the big number 64. So Isaiah 64. And we're going to start this morning right at verse 1. So Isaiah 64, uh, beginning at verse 1. Now, as you're getting there... Again, it's important to grab a little bit of context before we deal with the text itself. So Isaiah, Isaiah is living and working in Judah. Now, this is what we tend to think of as sort of southern Israel, and he's working and living and preaching before Israel, as God's people are sort of exiled into Babylon, right? He's living and working before God's people are ripped out of the land that God promised to his people. Uh, in many ways, Isaiah is working in the, uh, in the oncoming shadow of God's judgment, right? Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying to a people that God describes as both deaf and blind, let me say that again. Isaiah is prophesying to a people who God describes as deaf and blind, both to his word and to his work. So, so to put it bluntly, the people of Israel were unwilling to look at, to reflect on, and to repent of their internal worlds. And so, time and time again, Isaiah is asking God's people to prepare for the coming of the king. Now, even as I say that, it would be unfair to say that Israel wasn't, like, they, they weren't oblivious to everything that was happening. They were certainly feeling, if even only a little, they were feeling the effects of a sinful and broken and disobedient world. And so by the time then we come to Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah has been preaching about preparation for a while. And it seems that God's people haven't gotten the message through their very thick and hard hearts. And it seems to me that by Isaiah 64, Isaiah is left thinking, can it get any worse than this, right? Wars on the doorstep for Israel. People are failing to live as God has called them to live. God seems to be silent to our prayers. He seems unwilling to act on our behalf. Isaiah is saying, can it get any worse? And it occurs to me that the holiday season, this season that we're in, is supposed to be filled with joy. And it often is. But as of late, that joy, at least from my seat, seems to be fleeting. Or people are using joy as a cover-up to a deep-seated longing or hurt or anxiety. Again, from my seat, it seems as of late that joy is a band-aid on the open and the festering wound of hurt. You know, there are, there are wars in our world. 
There are rumors of war, not, not only in lands across the ocean, but there's a war going on in the human heart as well. There are natural disasters that are run amok. There are families who feel like they've been waiting on God to speak or act for weeks, months. Some of you here have been waiting on God to work for years. There are individuals here who are feeling the, the silence of God, living in what feels like a dry and a parched land. There are addictions in our midst, addictions that are running ragged and relationships that have run aground. And all of this is happening under the banner of a season of joy. So what are we to do then when we know in our heart of hearts that all feels lost? Asking like Isaiah did, can it get any worse? This is where Isaiah is helpful. So let's get to it. Verse verse 1. Isaiah says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Friends, from my perspective, this, this is prophetic poetry that essentially translates to this, help me. It's prophetic poetry that says we need help. Now, it is beautiful imagery, imagery that is quite powerful. Isaiah's help me is this, rip open the sky and come down to earth right? Rend the heavens, pull the sky open, and come down. Now, if we back up for just a minute, if we were to take a a quick survey of Israel's history, we'd see that it's not ridiculous to think or believe that God would come from heaven to earth. If we go all the way back in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, we would read that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, that he would walk with his children. And though the fall into sin would change that relationship and the nature of how humanity and their creator would interact, post-Genesis 3 and, and humanity's expulsion from the garden, God's coming down to earth in the Old Testament takes on different forms. Sometimes it's visitors to Abram's tent. Sometimes it's a wrestler in the middle of the night. But most notably, and certainly in the mind of Isaiah, is God's coming down to earth at Mount Sinai. It was there at Mount Sinai that God came in the form, here it is, of fire. He was a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And then again, in Exodus chapter 19, just just days before God gives the Ten Commandments, we read this. It says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Listen. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended onto it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. Listen, and the whole mountain trembled 
violently. So here at Mount Sinai, in this moment, God comes from heaven to earth in a display of power, showing Israel and the world, really, who he is, who this God is, and who is this God? He is, and I would note here, a God who cares for his people, a God who is not oblivious to the needs of the world, a God who does not ignore the pain and the hurt and the anxiety and the sin of his people. As the psalmist says, From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all of mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all the people who live on earth. And we, the psalmist says, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Help me, Isaiah is saying. Help us. Split the sky open and come down like you have in our past. So then in verse 4, a church, if there's a verse that I'm underlining or circling or highlighting, if it's your Bible, I guess you can do it in the church Bibles too, it's this one, right? Verse 4. In verse 4, Isaiah says, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, listen, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Now I'm wondering if we caught that. You see, God acts on behalf of his people. Isaiah is saying, unlike the gods of the nations, all of the nations that are surrounding the people of Israel, those gods represented by idols made of stone and metal, where those people have to act in a particular kind of way to gain favor from the gods, or or in another way, different than the gods of the land, where the people have to work on behalf of the gods, What Isaiah is saying is he's referring to a God who works for us, who's willing to intervene on our behalf. He is a God who answers the cry, help me. I remember it clearly, Sam saying to me, he hasn't gotten to the point where he knows he needs help. In the first parish that I served, about a year and a half out of the seminary, there was a a 19-year-old who stumbled into worship on a Sunday morning who was visibly drunk. Uh, He smelled drunk. And he was unruly and loud. And who better to take care of that moment then of the three pastors, the one who had been there the shortest, right? They gave him to me. Not the senior pastor who had been there 20 years. No, no, no. Give him to the guy who's been out of the sem for a year. So I remember taking him out into the narthex and just trying to sit with him and just trying to listen to his story. And there were all kinds of hurt and pain coming out of his mouth. And they were hurt and pain that I couldn't understand. But you could hear through his words, a help me. Never said it, but certainly implied. 
One thing led to another. Ultimately, I ended up taking him home to the house of his birth, to where his parents were. I remember coming up to the door and saying, hey, your son, you know, he wandered into church. and Turn him, I remember dad sort of thanking me. Shortly after that, I called a man in our congregation by the name of Sam. Sam had been in recovery for the better part of his life. He spent years in AA. And I was trying to ask Sam, like, Sam, what's the best thing to do here? Like, how can we as God's people help? Because obviously he has a world of hurt. He has a world that is broken. He's got a world of pain and sin. How can we help? And Sam said to me, he hasn't gotten to the point where he knows he needs help. And until he comes face to face with the help he needs, until he hits rock bottom, no help will help. The best thing you can do for him is allow him to come to his end. Season of Advent is about preparation of internal things. It's an opportunity to profess what we are and what we are not. There is in this season of joy, hurt and pain and anxiety. There is sin run amok in this family of faith. There are people who are waiting for God to speak and act. We want to join the words of Isaiah and say, rip open the heavens and come down. You are the God who acts on behalf of his people. It's interesting. We know because we are a people living after of Israel that God would indeed rip open the heavens and come down. Not in fire in a bush, but a wrinkly, messy infant in a manger. And he would show power not by making the mountains tremble, but by submitting to death. So that you and I, when we say, help me, he is ready to help. Isaiah says it this way in verse 8, You, Lord, are our Father. We're the clay. You're the potter. We're the work of your hand. Don't be angry beyond measure. Don't remember our sins forever. Look on us, we pray, for we are your people. It's so interesting. Again, if you take a survey of the Old Testament, God is rarely referred to as Father in the Old Testament. Lord, God Almighty, Right? God powerful. Rarely do we hear Father. And yet in this tender moment, when the children of God say, help me, we wait in hope for a Father who acts on our behalf. As we prepare for the coming of the Christ, as we think about the preparations of our heart, this season is an opportunity to declare who we are, a people who cannot fix our own sin problem, a people who have come to the end of their rope, a people who are crying, help me. And so we wait 
in this season for God to rip open the heavens and come again. To Him be the glory. Amen? And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard and keep our hearts in Christ today and every day. Amen.